morning, everybody. We took a couple months off from a series we began a while uh, called Majoring in the Minors. Uh, look at some of the minor prophets. And uh, we're going to finish that up in the next few weeks by looking at uh, Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Also been known by some as Malachi, the Italian prophet. But I don't think that's quite biblically accurate. Uh, but Malachi is his name. And it's the last book in the Old Testament, an incredible book. It's a timeless message that's in this book. The message is indeed contemporary, it's equally instructive today, as much as it was some 2,500 years ago when it was first spoken. We're going to be looking at the first five verses. I'd like to read them and pray and ask for God to teach us. Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance to the jackals of the wilderness. And though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is so deep, so rich. Lord, it's so relevant to what we go through in the day-to-day. -day. Sometimes we can look at the Old Testament books, and certainly Malachi, and think it's outdated, it's Relevant, but God, nothing could be further from the truth. Your words are eternal. They are living and active. And we pray, pray, God, that they would have a work in our hearts this morning. Please teach us. Please cut away from our lives all I would is not of you. So we live a life that's honoring to you, Lord. Might this time around your word just change us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Apparently there's a football game on today, uh, the Super Bowl, and uh, many of you are probably going to watch it, and I always like to take a poll to find out uh, where your loyalties lie as far as this game. Now, in reality, my Bears aren't in it, neither are your Vikings or Packers, so you know, don't get too hard on me. But we do have Denver Broncos, and we do have Carolina Panthers, and let's find out who the Carolina Panthers crowd here, who's rooting for them? There's a few of us, okay. How about the Denver Broncos? Whoa, some, oh, goodness. Where are we at? Colorado? And, uh, well, Scott and I, we'll, we'll be in Carolina scoring everyone else. Uh, good luck. Um, but one thing, if you notice, I always notice when the playoffs come, the intensity's ratcheted up. You really see teams that are passionate about football. There's a, there's a drive and there's a desire that's more noticeable to be the best. And there's a main point that comes from Malachi that's kind of related to that. Passion. You know, when Malachi was written, it's written at a time of transition, but it's so relevant to what we go through because many in our culture and our churches seem to be suspicious of this thing called passion. You see, living with passion, you could call passionate spirituality, it should mark our days. It should mark our decisions. It should mark our lives. But often it doesn't. And, but 
The question would be, does it mark your days? Does it mark your week? Your weekend? It's a question Malachi poses to you and I. And let's see what God's Word says on this, because it's so instructive and so helpful to help you and I live out this life of passion, passionate spirituality. A little background on the book helps, of course, always. It puts us in its context. Malachi is written, again, at a time of transition. From the contents of this book, we kind of learn an approximate timetable when it was written. After the Jews had been exported to Babylon, God had allowed this to happen, and it was his way of disciplining them, and they'd been exported there. Nebuchadnezzar returned under Zerubbabel, who was a governor. He was a new governor of Judah at that point. And we can narrow down some internal evidence which helps us. One, in Malachi's day, the temple was apparently rebuilt. We see that in chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 1, and verse 10. Which places Malachi after the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. The Jews also were under a civil ruler. We see that in chapter 1, verse 8. Nehemiah was the last civil ruler, which places him, Malachi, before Nehemiah's death. Extra-biblical evidence, the Elephantine papyri, discovered in 1903, it confirmed Nehemiah's governorship. And, but the source also tells us that the governorship ended about 408 B.C. We also see that the offenses rebuked by Malachi are the, precisely the ones that Nehemiah corrected in his second stint in Jerusalem. And that's why it's important when you read Ezra and Nehemiah and those other books to kind of put it in context of about when they were. They help us understand a lot about it. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are tied to Malachi and also the post-exilic prophets uh, quite clearly. And because of that, we can narrow all this down. The dates down to 432 to 424 B.C. is when Malachi was written. Now, another significant point about the dating of this, and this is what's really important, is he's the last prophetic voice we hear for hundreds of years. I think that's important. In the history, again, he's one of three post-exilic prophets. And Zerubbabel, this first governor, he returned from Babylonian exile. And with the aid of Haggai and Zechariah, he encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. And then Ezra returned with a group. And Ezra came and talked and sought to bring revival to the people. He began to teach and lead the spiritual revival, at least lead people towards their passion for God. Nehemiah then returned, and he led the people rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so you kind of have this wave of exiles returning. The sacrificial system had been reestablished. But unfortunately, the priests and the people had become very mechanical in their worship and devotion. Of course, that would never happen to us. It can pretty easily. So we find, once again, that connection and relevance of the word. But the purpose and the bottom line of this, they lost their passion for God. They lost their passion for the things of God. Worship, again, it become mechanical. It become just routine. Serving God was something that was an afterthought, maybe when I get time for it. And when they did come and worship, they gave God leftovers. They stayed up really late on Saturday night, came to worship on Sunday morning, half asleep, thinking, hey, at least I'll show up. That type of mindset. They lost their passion. And their lives became marked by smugness, pride, compromise. I read in a college 
read an article somewhere, a college campus had put on a, a wall which was affirmed by the college. It said, apathy rules. I thought that kind of could mark the people of Malachi's day. And the aim of this prophet is to restore the Jews to a fresh relationship with God by indicating the precise causes of their loss of passion. We're going to see a number of things brought out through Malachi that you and I are going to be able to look at our lives and evaluate and trust God to change. And he laid out steps for these people and for you and I to be renewed in their passion for God. Now Malachi, to me, strikes me as very fitting as the last of the prophetic voices from the Old Testament. Not only is he oriented to the past, but he has a future-looking posture as well, making him a, a great transitional prophet for you and I. Because after Malachi, the voice of prophecy in Israel ceased until John the Baptist appeared some 400 years later. His is the last prophetic voice. There's a man named Nagelsbach at Herzog Cyclopedia, and he wrote these eloquent words. I appreciate it. He says, Malachi is like a late evening, which brings a long day to a close. But he's also like a morning dawn, which bears a glorious day in its womb. I think uh, Nagelsbach speaks to that transitional component that Malachi brought, about that, that past, that focus of what God had done in his people's past, but also the future of what waited for them down the road in God's chosen people. Now we notice in verse 1, the second word, the oracle, you might say, what is an oracle? It, it also means burden. The burden of. Now there's three things we learn about this oracle right away. The oracle is the word of the Lord. So this isn't just man's opinion. What we're reading is the word of the Lord. This oracle, originally in its context, is to Israel, God's chosen people. And a third thing we learn about this oracle is it comes through Malachi. His name means messenger, which is very fitting as we read his message. The other thing about Malachi, which is interesting, is he never appears anywhere, that I can, anywhere else that I can find mentioned in the Bible. He's quoted in Romans 9, but we don't see his name anywhere. Maybe that's kind of fitting. It seems like Malachi's that type of guy. He wanted to give a message and then get out of the way, kind of like John the Baptist. It's interesting that he ended this Old Testament prophetic voice, and John the Baptist came on the scene, and they both had the same kind of temperament. It was proclaim the word of the Lord and then get out of the way. That's maybe the hardest thing to do. But both of those did it well. But how do you begin a book, which is going to be the last prophetic voice for some 400 years? How do you begin that message? What would be the lasting message you would want to leave? How do you begin it? Well, look how God begins it. I'd love to. Simple. We sang about it. God says, I'd love you. Some argue that there's more of a perfect tense element here, and that there, it's just you could simply read it, I love you. You could debate that, but the point is God does love them. And he does want them to know he has loved them. And it begins with these beautiful words, and I thought, what could be more tender? What could be more calculated to warm their hearts than these words? I've loved you. And God declared it loud and clear. His love was mighty. God wanted them to trust that love. And he wants you also to trust his love. And so he declares his love, and it seems to me, as I look at this and when I think of my life, that 
When you and I trust his love, really trust him, that's when passion comes. And so God begins this letter by proclaiming and declaring his love. Now, whether it's in Malachi's time, and certainly things were changing, and whatever changes we find in this world, whatever changes may be coming in your life, God never changes. His love never changes. And I think he really wanted that point made. So I've loved you. I love you. That has never changed. And that's his proclamation. There's a worship song. I don't know if you've ever seen it here. It's called One Thing Remains. And there's a line from it. I love it. It went through my mind a lot this week. It says, One thing remains. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Isn't that good? His love never fails. It never gives up. And it will never run out on me. It's inexhaustible. I love that. I love that song we sing, Jesus Loves Me. You may have grew up with a song that, that way. And sometimes we can look at those words and say, oh yeah, that's, that's kindergarten stuff. A couple of weeks ago I uh, talked with a friend of mine. He's a worship leader over in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. And he was sharing with me. He said, hey man, I planned a, a song set. And uh, worship leaders, they like their song set. I mean, they don't, don't mess with it. And then he's already, already to go. And associate pastor contacts him and says to him, he says, you know, one of the songs picked out Jordan. Oh, how he loves us. He says, I'd rather, I'd prefer you to change it because it's, in his words, lyrically light. Jordan says, man, is that song lyrically light? I said, no, I'm not sure your associate pastor understands the love of God. If you would look at that song and that, that truth is lyrically light, he's missing it. Apparently, there's times we can misunderstand or not understand the depth of God's love. You see, passion doesn't, passion doesn't originate in our bleeding hearts or in our moral uprightness or our moral sweat. It comes from God's love, from God's mercy. Now, what the Apostle Paul said is... Christ's love that compels us. It's Christ's love that, that shoves us forward. It's Christ's love that motivates us. Not our sweat. Not our goodness. His love. And so God begins this letter by reminding them of his love. I read some time ago an article about a mountain climber. And, and, and he was kind of relaying all that went into it. I'm like, why do you do this? Like, you're crazy. Because he talks about all the things he needs and ropes and all these, you know, things in case of emergency. He's got to watch his step and sometimes he get fire up and yada, yada, yada. I'm like, why? Why would you do this? I thought, you know, a lot of us climb mountains, but there are mountains we don't choose to climb. And they can be difficult. And I don't know what mountain you're on or, or even who put you there. I don't know maybe how wearied you are by the climb or how weathered you are by the elements. I don't know... If you feel alone, or if you feel abandoned, or how weary you are. Maybe you're very disoriented, but wherever you are, and however you feel, in a sense, if I could ask you to do something, spiritually curl up in your chair, close your eyes, and I want you to remember. I want you to remember your own history with God. Think back on the times when God expressed his love for you. Remember those times? Remember the times, the words he spoke, the way he answered your prayers. Remember the gifts he gave you, the many kindnesses he's shown you. 
the forgiveness, the protection. Remember the love you felt for him, the joy, maybe even the tears. Remember all the times he's touched you, and he's embraced you, and he's led you. He hasn't changed. Neither has his love for you. It may not seem to be there, just like this climber's rope when it became slack. didn't feel like the rope was there, but it was there. Maybe his love doesn't seem like it's there. But it is. Matter of fact, Paul told us that nothing, nothing would ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed in Christ Jesus. And his love, his mercy is a rope that won't fray, regardless of how much it's stretched. It's a love that will never freeze because of how cold the winds may get in your life. His love never fails. It will never fail, no matter how far we may fall. The question I think God is trying to get the people in this, this time of Malachi to stop and evaluate is, it's not an issue of whether God's loved them. He has loved them always. It's not an issue of the quality of God's love. It's not an issue of whether God's love can endure. The issue is, do they trust that love? And that's the issue you and I need to ask. Do we trust God's love? Even when your life doesn't go your way, do you trust his heart? Do you trust his love? So God begins this with a statement, I loved you. Well, how did the people approach this? Well, we learned. They say, how have you loved us? They're challenging this statement. God says, I loved you, and the people are saying, since when? I mean, certainly doesn't look like you've loved us. Things haven't gone our way. You brought us back, but we're running into some of these snags here, and we had to begin economically to kind of get the community back. And how, how have you loved us? We don't see it. It's interesting, in the book of Malachi, there's this phrase, how, this word, how, that's used seven times, and in each of the times it's used, it expresses a state of mind that challenges God's statement. It's kind of a smug statement, kind of an arrogant one. How? How have you loved us? Now, though the exile may have prompted such thoughts and feelings, you'd think that the miraculous turn of events that God had brought about to bring them back would have caused them to step back and say, certainly, God has loved us. But his affection is called into question. It strikes me when you doubt his love, it's inevitable you'll lose passion. And when you, it, it's inevitable you'll ignore the cause of your carelessness and your impurity towards him when you begin to doubt his love. So I have to ask you, are you trusting his love? Or are you doubting it? And I ask of these people, how, how could they doubt his love? I wonder what went through their mind. Was it the lack of present prosperity? Was it their seemingly lack of national strength? Were they confused by God's actions, kind of like Psalm 73 and Asaph? Were they bitter? <clears throat> A lot of things that may have gone into this. How could they doubt his love? But I need to ask you like these. Have you doubted his love? And what's caused you to do that? God begins with a statement, I've loved you. I've always loved you. I love you. And they say, since when? They don't trust his love. Now it strikes me that doubt tends to question the existence of 
but trust deals with the response. In other words, doubt can come in and say they've even doubted the existence of God's love. But trusting that love is something that seems Malachi deals with the rest of the book, and that is how he responded to his act of love. He loves you, that's not an issue. His love is existing. The question to you and I is, do we trust it? What is our active response to his love? And we need to look in the background of our life, and, and he takes uh, his hearers back and says, remember what I've done for you. And we kind of run into this in this book. Look back. Have I not loved you? But they don't see God's hand. They're like, we don't, we don't get this. How have you loved us? Explain to us how you've loved us. And so God says, okay. And so he, he throws something out there. This is really challenging us in a minute before we get to that. Passion develops when you and I trust his love, even when his expression is not what we expect, and in order to be honest, even like. God answers their question, was not Esau Jacob's brother? They're called to think. God calls them now to see it in perspective. He starts easy with a yes-no question. They say, well, of course he was, yes. And then God introduces, based on this question, a striking comparison to demonstrate his love. Let's look at it, verse 3 through 5. Or at the end of verse 2, he says, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Now remember here, Judah were the descendants of Jacob, the Edomites were descendants of Esau. Now we're told in Genesis 25-23 that before either Jacob or Esau was even born, God had chosen Jacob. And so the prophet reveals God's love, and from his attitude towards Israel... And towards Edom, God says, I demonstrated my love to you. I chose Jacob. In so doing, I chose Israel to be my people. They'd be heirs to the promise. But Esau lost his blessing. God says, my love to Israel is an unconditional love. But what's here is probably one of the hardest sayings in the Bible, for not the whole Bible, certainly the Old Testament. You might look at it and say, God hating somebody? That doesn't sound, well, God-like. How do you reconcile a God that says, I loved you, I loved Jacob, and then says, I hated Esau? And sometimes in translation, we lose something. And here's one of the times that's kind of hard for us to pick up. The Hebrew structure here of this writing is over-strong in English. And by that means, it, the prophet's not res res um, referencing a literal love-hate comparison here. What he's talking to is a special choice of one, not the other. A choice of one, a rejection of the other. Hate here does not imply that God experiences some psychological hatred with all its negative and sinful expressions and connotations. These words express a different set of realities. That's not how you and I would use these words. Walter Kaiser, in his great book, Hard Sayings of the Old Testament, I like what he said. I thought he clarified it quite well. He says, God's love and hate in his deciding to prefer one person for a certain blessed task was bestowed apart from anything these men were or did. God's choice of Jacob took place before Jacob's birth. Thus, it's unfair to interpret these verses as evidence of favoritism or partiality on the part of God. They express a different set of realities than what our English words generally signify. 
You see, God determined that the people descended from Jacob, the Jews, would be his chosen people. He loved them in a special way that he did not love other nations. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, points to God's divine, what you could call, elective love. In his elective love, the whole issue of election is not there to perplex us, although if we're honest, it does. It's not there to trouble us. And when we understand it to the degree that God has revealed it, it should strengthen our faith, not lessen it. We should want to learn more about it. And that's why your next step is Romans 9, which is addresses it. But you and I need to avoid accusing God of injustice. God's love and hate contrast is used to illustrate his love, his elective love, his sovereign election. And you and I can't get away with it, nor, or away from it, nor should we ever want to, that he chooses and elects people to carry out his plan. And his purposes always promote his glory, even if we don't understand them all. Now, I'm one who would really caution you if you get anyone in this whole issue of election and free will who goes to one extreme or the other, don't listen to them. Because you can be pretty dogmatic about it and begin to say, this is what God thinks. This is what the mind of God is. Whenever we're trying to proclaim what God's mind is, we're in trouble. But we do take the truths here, and we, we wonder, certainly. But we need to embrace them and all that they say. Because the thing that it strikes me is certainly as we get to this election time and you got all these polls coming out in New Hampshire, which Republicans are going to do well. The thing about God is he doesn't take a Gallup poll to see if we agree with his plan or not. God doesn't really much care if we agree with it or not. He's going to carry it out because it will always be for his glory. And the point he's trying to make here is it will always be a loving plan. And so when you look at these words, I've hated Esau, don't think of a love-hate comparison as we do Think of God choosing Jacob, a special choice that he made for his glory. We'll be safe when we look at that text in a biblical, balanced way. Now the end of verse 3 describes the result of God's rejection of Esau. Edom's territory became a wasteland inhabited by jackals. God's love for his people could be seen in that the exiles returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt, while Edom, on the other hand, experienced only destruction. If you look at verse 4, we, though Edom says we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, kind of we'll roll our sleeves up, we'll show you, God. We'll do this ourselves. We don't need you, God. God says they may build, but I'll tear it down. In other words, I'm the one in control. I call the shots. And men will call them wicked territory. Even evil men will call Edom a wicked territory. Obadiah, which is a, a prophecy against Edom. We've looked at that one before. There's evidence of this. Given in Obadiah. Obadiah, verse 11, I would say chapter 1, but there's only one chapter. Uh, verse 11, we read that Obadiah, or Edomites, stood by while Jerusalem was invaded. Verse 12, Edomites rejoiced in the captivity of the sons of Judah. The Edomites actively participated in the ransacking of Jerusalem. And the Edomites helped set up roadblocks to prevent the escape of the Jewish people. At every step, Esau's descendants stood in opposition of God. And stood in opposition of God's people. In verse 5, this showed the wisdom and superiority of God's choice. Because God says, your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified. In other words, it will come about that they will see God's sovereignty, His majesty in action. 
And when Old, Old Testament history came to a close, God said, Jacob, I've loved. Jacob, I've chosen. Esau, I've rejected. Grace and love was shown to Jacob was to the very end. Although clearly Jacob did not deserve it. It's amazing to me when we look through the Bible and oftentimes we see God referred to as the God of Jacob. That kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. If you read Jacob's life, he was a liar. He was a deceiver. He doubted God's at time. And then the Bible calls him the God of Jacob. And the kind of the neat thing, kind of in a weird kind of way, is you could put your name there too. Because we fail miserably just like Jacob. And yet he's called the God of Jacob. This man he chose and the lineage he chose. All of God's dealings with Israel and Judah were done in love. I mean, think about it if we were looking at a summary of the Old Testament. When they were ignorant, he blessed them with true knowledge of himself. When they were weak and defenseless, he empowered them and shielded them from their enemies. And when they strayed, he disciplined them. When they persisted in wickedness, he eventually sent the Babylonian captivity as the prophets warned he would do generations before. Then he brought them back to Judah. He established them within the walls of a re-fortified Jerusalem. And had them rebuild the temple. So they could again, once again kind of regain the sense of their spiritual identity as God's people. There was blessing and judgment. There was building and destruction. But in all these things God had loved them. And was continuing to work with them in order that they might be a precious and holy people. Edom, however, perished utterly. His love had never let Jacob down. His love had never let Judah down. His love will never let you down. You can trust his love, but do you? It was once said, when you don't understand God's hand, trust his heart. I think that's good counsel. Let's be honest, there's times in our life, like Jacob, like Israel, where we don't understand what God's doing and we're tempted in those moments to say God's lost control of this. We look at America and say things are way out of control. It's got out of, got out of God's control here. Things have gotten away from him. You look at your life and say, how could this be a good thing? We wonder. We question his hand. But I think God was saying to you and I this morning, you might not understand what I'm doing, but you need to trust my heart. You can trust my love. It will never fail you. And Malachi presents you and I with no lyrically light question. Do you trust his love? Or are you fixated on your circumstances? Are you fixated on your physical qualities, your physical difficulties, your bank account? Or are you in essence saying to God, how have you loved me? Look at my life, I don't see much love. Look all I'm going through. And because of that, you're tied up inside. This morning, you need to let go. You need to trust his love. I remember one of my kids once was up in a tree. And they climbed and climbed and climbed and got too far up. And they were frozen. They didn't know what to do. And you know, at that point, I could have, I could have marched ten bodybuilders under that tree. Men whose strength was far greater than mine. He would have never jumped. Because strength wasn't the issue. Oh, he trusted their strength. But what was in question? His heart. 
my son would have looked down and said, I'm not sure they'll want to catch me. But I know Dad does. And so my next, all these bodybuilders looking puny next to him, he would jump to me. Because he knows I love him. And he trusts my heart. The thing about God's love is it always calls for some type of response. Whenever you read it in the Bible, it's always calling for a response to that love, to respond to it in some way. And you will remain tied up and you will remain defeated. I promise you, if you don't trust his love. If you don't begin to trust his love, nothing will change. And some of you just need to hear this this morning. God loves you personally, passionately, powerfully. And I know others may have failed you. Those who have loved you didn't. Maybe those who could have loved you didn't. Maybe you're left at an orphanage, you're left at an altar. faced with an empty bed or a broken heart. Others have failed, but God will never fail you. His love will never fail. It'll never run out. And what he promises, he will succeed in. He loves you, and it's the truth of Scripture. You read it all through Psalms, and there's a reason, reason it's all through Psalms. It's because we need a reminder. His love is an unfailing love. His spiritual passion becomes restored when you and I trust his love. Because it's only his love that if we trust it can fill us. And you and I can drink deeply of that love and we'll never exhaust it. Can you this morning take a step and say, God, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what you want me to do or I don't know what you want me to go. I don't know where you want me to take me in this life, but I'm going to choose to trust you. And I'm done resisting you. I won't fight you anymore. My friend, who has a couple sons he adopted, one of the sons they had some trouble with, which is not unusual, uh, outbreaks of anger and, and restlessness. And, and he says, it seems the only thing that really helps during those times is my words seem to fall on empty ears, is when I hold them and he fights it, he fights it, he resists it, and he resists it, but then eventually he stops. His head goes on my shoulder. And a calmness and a peace comes over him. Some of you right now are fighting God. And you're resisting him. And God's just saying, let me hold you. Trust my love. Put your head upon my heart and listen to my heartbeat all through the scriptures. You can trust it. And when you trust it, you'll experience a peace and a restored passion you haven't known before. But I also realize some of you have never responded ever to the love of Christ. You've never trusted in his love which is expressed on the cross by his death and by his resurrection. And the Bible claims that by faith, you and I entered a relationship with Jesus Christ by trusting him. And you may have never done that. And it might find you in your posture this morning resisting God and running from him. And you've never surrendered. This morning... I don't know where you're at. But I do know that you can trust God's love. And I do know it from experience when you resist it, when you fight it, life doesn't go so good. There's things in our life that begin to take us in bondage and down roads we've never won, all because we didn't trust his love. If you've never trusted Christ and his love for you, 
invite you to do that this morning. If you're a believer here, and you're resisting God in one area, maybe many, and God's saying to you this morning, you need to let go. You need to quit fighting. And just trust my love. I want to give you an opportunity this morning in prayer to commune with God, to talk with Him, to say things you need to say. So I'll allow you to bow. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, this morning in these next few moments, hear the words of my friends here. I pray you comfort them. I pray you speak into their hearts, into their lives, into their situations. So this morning, communicate with him right now. Speak out of your heart to his. And I'll allow you quiet to do that. morning as you bow, if you would say right now, I've never trusted Jesus. His love for me, his work on the cross. This morning that's something you would choose to do. Lord, if you are a believer and this morning as you sit here you recognize and confess you've been fighting him. You've been resisting him. You haven't trusted his heart. You've been angry about his hand. find yourself in either one of those positions this morning with all heads bowed. I just want you by faith to slip your hand up. I want to pray for you. Slip your hand up this morning. Father, for those courageous enough and who humbled themselves before you this morning by slipping their hand up, I pray for them. It would be easy to pray, God, that their circumstances would change. But I don't. I pray simply this, God, that they would know in a greater way the height and depth of your love. They would feel that strong hope of your love. And Lord, there would be a deeper conviction in their life they've never known before, is that your love will never fail them. You'll never give up on them. And out of all the things in this world, there's one thing we can trust, and that's your love. with that truth. Change us with that truth. I ask this in Jesus' name.
you'd stand.